There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the third part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, which was originally aired as one episode on the 27th of November, 2012. Welcome back to the war again for the third and final time. Last time the question of the East grew more complicated as revolts on the borders of the Ottoman Empire pushed Europe to take sides, particularly as news of atrocities and massacres abounded. These events completely threw British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, as well as German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, into the deep end. Both men had extensive interests in the region of the Balkans and the Dardanelles, where Russian and Turkish attentions seemed to be focused. While one attempt at peacemaking in Constantinople had miserably failed, the Constantinople Conference of December 1876 to January 77, Bismarck remained desperate for a solution to the problem which seemed to force him into the unenviable position of picking a side. As Disraeli prepared to mount another diplomatic campaign against the Russians for their raising of the stakes in the region, Bismarck prepared to find a way out of his own binds. I will now take you to early 1877, but before I do that, you know the drill, guys. It is time for the 22nd Patreon ad, so here we go. Stopwatches at the ready, one, two, three, go. So Patreon and When Diplomacy Fails have teamed up to give you a whole host of wonderful goods, and of course, an exclusive feed. 
If you want to give a very small amount every month, you can be partial to these wonderful goods. Just go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. I don't know what gotcom is. Go to wdfpodcast.com, click on the Patreon banner, and you can avail these goodies straight away. Okay, well, great. Wow, <laughs> it's hard to speak quickly sometimes. Okay, so I will now take you to early 1877. I don't even know if those ads work because you can't really understand what I'm saying, but there you go. Thanks for listening, guys, and enjoy the episode. Nationality is the miracle of political independence. Race is the principle of physical analogy. Benjamin Disraeli When Bismarck discovered that the Russians had essentially forced a junior diplomat into the position of delivering a kind of ultimatum to his government in early spring 1877, it seemed only natural that he would shoot the messenger. Faced with difficult options, whatever choice he took, Bismarck let out his frustration on the man charged with delivering the bad news to Berlin, who in this case was the German military attaché, Bernhard von Werder, for allowing himself to be in such a position. As he wrote to Ernst von Bülow, State Secretary of the German Foreign Ministry, Von Werder is worse than clumsy for letting himself be used as a Russian tool to extort from us an uncomfortable and untimely declaration. For the first time in his telegrams, the Tsar talks of war with Austria, whereas up to now one has spoken of saving the Three Emperors Alliance, and now to pose the insidious question of Austria with a yes or no is a trap set by Gorchakov. If we say no, he stirs up the Tsar. If we say yes, he will use it in Vienna. Yet, while Bismarck worried for the future of his empire's stability and of the endurance of the friendships he had created, events in Constantinople were to grant German diplomacy a second chance, while they also guaranteed that a war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire would be on the cards. Just before the Ottoman vizier rejected the great power's terms, the Austrian and Russian delegates were speaking behind closed doors, and had worked out a solution to any tensions which could potentially arise from a Russo-Turkish war. In short, the agreement signed on the 15th of January 1877 between Austria and Russia declared that Russia would do the fighting and Austria would take a sizable chunk of the spoils, particularly in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which if you haven't noticed yet, Austria really had a soft spot for. This was certainly a great relief to Bismarck, since it meant he didn't have to pick and as a result alienate any side in the future. France would remain isolated, as was the norm, and Germany could keep its two best friends. As for Benjamin Disraeli, the hope that the divisions of the Eastern European powers would maintain peace, or that at least Bismarck would, were quickly fading. Devoid of concrete allies, and pressured by the atrocitarian movement, it is doubtful that Disraeli could have opposed the Russian ambitions, even if he had wanted to. So it was, by this stage, Russia felt confident enough in her position to declare war on the Ottoman Empire on the 24th of April 1877, understanding that the sentiments of most of Europe were largely anti-Ottoman and that public support at home in Russia was at an all-time high. Germany and Austria maintained a benevolent but no doubt cautious neutrality. France watched longingly from an isolated position having little to really offer in terms of influence or interest in now-distant Turkish affairs. The Ottomans watched the growing number of troops massing in the Caucasus and along the Russian border, and must have known what was coming next. 19th century nations were nothing if not predictable for their preparations in war. For the twelfth time in their history then, at least in officially recorded history, the armies of the Ottoman and Russian empires prepared to do battle with one another again. 
As Disraeli looked on, horrified, the sentiments of many in Britain began to shift. While all had seemed content to argue along Gladstone's lines for the previous months, the memory of the Ottoman massacres were beginning to fade by late spring, and in the fickle world of publicly blessed policy, Disraeli came to see that Russia's actions here actually came at the best possible time for his administration. If the British Prime Minister could rally the surprised and still anti-Russian portions of British opinion to his side, who hadn't expected the Russian declaration of war on the Ottomans, then he could play again with the hearts and minds of the populace. All he had to do was replace their love of morals with a love of Britain's strategic position, to imbue conservatism with national honour and the national interest. If he did this, Disraeli hoped, and if the Russians proved provocative enough, then the Crimean War Part 2 could be his reward upon which he could base his political legacy. While he would have been a fool to rely on international events, Disraeli would be taken aback not by affairs abroad, but by his peers at home. Not everyone, it seemed, was willing to see Britain hurl itself into the abyss. Some were even willing to bet their careers on the idea that war with Russia was the last thing that Britain needed. As the military forces mobilised along the Danube and in the Balkans, the political lines were being drawn in London. The war began well for Russia. Russian troops swarmed into Romania and into Bulgaria, while a second front in the Caucasus to re-establish Russian control over the Black Sea threw the Ottomans into disarray. It seemed as though the Tsar would have Constantinople before 1877 was over, and Britain simply couldn't allow that to happen. The reasons the Ottoman Empire was being brushed aside so easily and so fast couldn't be put down to their inferiority in numbers. In fact, the Russians could field 300,000 men in total, but initially they only sent 185,000 men across the Danube into the Balkans, a mistake which would almost cost them dearly in the months to come. Despite the impression I may have given you thus far, the Ottomans had, strategically, practically, and at least in the beginning numerically, all the advantages over their Russian opponent. The Ottomans were fortified, had complete control of the Black Sea since the Crimean War, and even mustered a force of patrol boats to send up the Danube River. The Ottomans were also kitted out with the latest in military technology thanks to arms deals with the British and American firms, which granted them top-of-the-range small arms and artillery. With all these advantages and the numerical edge over their adversary then, how did the Ottomans lose? James J. Reed in his book, Crisis of the Ottoman Empire, Prelude to Collapse, 1839-1878, explains the situation thus... In the era of the Balkan revolts and the Russo-Turkish War, the broad expanse of imperial territory combined with a diffuse population, part of which was willing to support any enemy of the Ottomans during any war, placed a great strain upon the army's ability to control and defend the empire. The low or non-existent professional standards of many Ottoman soldiers and Ottoman officers exacerbated the problem of control. From the Crimean War to the end of the Russo-Turkish War, High Ottoman officials and Ottoman generals considered the only effective defence to be the scattered deployment of numerous small detachments over broad lines of defence. This strategic military approach was the creation of amateur strategists unaccustomed to practical military thinking. James J. Reid actually understates how bad an idea it was to put small amounts of men in every single place they could possibly find, it's possibly the worst strategy you could implement when trying to defend a long border. You and I both know this, and this makes it all the more baffling that the Turkish officials were content to just sit tight in positions that so often became surrendered, rather than using what advantages they did have. As Reid continues, though, the problem was deeper than a mere failure to understand basic military tactics. He writes, 
A number of adverse effects came about from this strategy. Before armies met and fought battles, soldiers in the scattered units became fearful and even superstitiously paranoid about their surroundings. Their small numbers failed to inspire confidence in themselves. If subjects near the camp appeared to side with the enemy, then this paranoia could provoke aggressive intimidation, assault and even massacre to prevent overwhelming attacks by both the enemy army and rebellious subjects. Both sides assumed too much of the other in the war. The Ottomans, for some reason, assumed that the Russians would be too lazy to march across the Danube at any point other than first moving down the Black Sea coast. This idea was conveniently suited to the massive amounts of fortifications and soldiers that the Ottomans had in place there. In short, the Ottomans expected the Russians to attack them directly at their strongest point and planned for the war accordingly. The Russians didn't plan too much better though, because they assumed that the Ottomans would fight limply and not put up too much resistance, so because of this they only sent their 185,000 men into the fray rather than the 300,000 that they actually had. As I've already said, when it became clear that this number wouldn't be enough, a frantic effort to rectify the problem nearly cost Russia the war, whereas if they'd simply prepared like they should have, the war may actually have been over by Christmas before any Russian setbacks occurred at all. We may even be talking about how the Russians marched into Constantinople before Britain could even stop them, and that in itself is an interesting alternative history to think about. But the initial success and speed of the Russians fizzled out once they met actual, qualified Ottoman resistance, which in itself was quite a rarity around this period of the Ottoman Empire, I can assure you. On the 20th of July 1877, in the Siege of Pleven or Plevna, a city of Bulgaria, Russian soldiers tried to maintain a kind of blockade with the limited resources available to them. Although they first attacked the city on the 20th, it wasn't until the end of the month that significant progress with the siege was made. For the Ottomans, that is. The Ottomans fought back tenaciously, holding down much of the Russian army and depleting the Russian supplies. St. Petersburg had expected the attack on the town to be successful, and only briefly occupy her forces, but the Ottomans repelled the attack and the siege dragged on for months longer than it should have. It wasn't until the 9th of December that the Ottoman garrison, by now sufficiently reduced, surrendered to the Russian-Romanian army, which by now had been swelled with reinforcements from Romania. In the meantime, the city of Stara Zagora had been raised by Ottoman soldiers, who had defeated the Russian army sent to remove them from the city, and set about then massacring the civilians within it, who they believed had helped the Russians in the battle that the Russians had just lost. Such massacres didn't improve the Ottoman reputation, and they only heightened the tension between Turkey and the other world powers, and of course, they gave Russia more justification for its advance, which after these initial setbacks, resumed again and moved towards Constantinople. Meanwhile in the Caucasus, the Russo-Armenian army of 75,000 men fought a series of battles for strategic fortifications through what is now Georgia and Armenia against the Ottoman army of 80,000. The Russians, as in the Balkan theatre, actually possessed technologically inferior equipment to the Ottomans, while the Ottomans continued to throw away chance after chance with an anemic defence strategy and a poor use of their numbers as they had in the Balkans. The Russian gains were numerous in spite of the Ottoman holding action at Pleven, and their advance towards Constantinople seemed unstoppable. And it was here that Disraeli's powers seemed at their peak, because he capitalised upon the hysteria present in his country to call for increasingly rash action against the Russians. The old atrocitarian movement now seemed like a distant memory, and Disraeli repeatedly insisted that British honour and prestige was at stake, 
if she couldn't dislodge the Russians from her sphere of interest by any means. In direct ideological opposition to Disraeli was his longtime friend and colleague and star on our mug and reward tier, Lord Darby, who as Foreign Secretary at this time argued passionately against British intervention against the Russians. As Darby sought to use his contacts in the Russian Foreign Office, most notably with the Russian ambassador to Britain, Count Shuvalov, the once esteemed statesman became a huge thorn in Disraeli's side. Every diplomatic crisis which seemed to pass, owing to Darby's diplomatic ability and wherewithal, represented to Disraeli another missed opportunity to demonstrate to the world just Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. How much Britain meant business. It sounds incredible now to speak of Disraeli's actions as though they were serious, but Disraeli was heavily influenced by the idea that Britain had to act forcefully, or at least be seen to act forcefully, or else its reputation and image abroad would mean nothing. Disraeli was supported in this line of thinking by his queen, Victoria, whom he had helped crown as Empress of India in 1875, so yeah, the two were on pretty good terms. Convinced of the infallibility of Disraeli's argument, Victoria continued to write angry letters both to Disraeli and Derby, informing them of what was at stake if Britain was not seen to act on the world stage. But Derby stuck to his guns, and it wasn't until he suffered an unfortunate and badly timed bout of illness in mid-January 1878 that the tables began to turn against him. When he returned to his duties, it wasn't just Disraeli but also Lord Salisbury, an up-and-coming MP and, at this point, the Secretary for the Colonies, who was now against him. For so long, Salisbury represented the proverbial weather vane of British cabinet opinion. With him gone to the side of the interventionists, there was little to stop Disraeli from bringing the rest of the cabinet to his side. So Darby felt he had no choice but to double down on his diplomatic efforts and he engaged regularly with Shuvalov in an attempt to defuse the tensions. What truly worried the London papers were the rumours in mid-January of 1878 that Constantinople had been taken as the telegraph wires had gone down. Shuvalov confirmed to Darby that Russia's position was nowhere near secure enough to seize Constantinople, and Darby reported this back to his colleagues, but Disraeli still insisted on an action to bring the Russians to see reason. 
If he couldn't wage a punitive war against them, then Disraeli planned to cement British prestige on the world stage by humiliating the Russians diplomatically. This could be achieved through a great show of force, and what better location than the Dardanelles Straits, upon which so much depended? Darby was horrified at this idea, and he also had to deal with additionally provocative plans, such as the seizure of a Mediterranean island along Turkey's coast, which Britain could use as a naval base to show it was serious, whatever that meant. Darby sought at all costs to avoid war, and again he engaged with Shuvalov to find a solution. It was then that Disraeli produced a number of bogus reports, indicating public support for a British strike against Russia, and an Austrian alliance if she moved her fleet into the Dardanelles within the next month. Armed with such information, Disraeli pounced, insisting that, if she didn't act now, Britain would be shamed internationally and experience such a drop in prestige that all her colonies would abandon her. Outraged at the level of hyperbole and suspicious of the reports that seemed to conveniently suit his former friend's course of action, Darby resigned in late January 1878 upon Disraeli's continued assistance that the Royal Navy must be sent up the Dardanelles. A truce had by that stage been signed between the Russians and Turks, but because the Russian soldiers kept moving, Disraeli believed he needed to maintain the pressure until St. Petersburg pulled them back. Thus, the Navy was set the task of patrolling menacingly up the Straits, an act which Darby had always opposed. Almost as soon as he had resigned, though, and if you listen to Britain Goes to War, you'll remember this chain of events pretty well, and they still strike me as incredible now, Darby was called back when it emerged that Disraeli's reports were not as accurate as had been assumed. No alliance with Austria was forthcoming, and Britain was fundamentally divided in the public sphere over the issue of intervention. With Darby back as Foreign Secretary, he tried to acquire more information about the recent developments in the war. Though the truce had been signed, little information about what the Russians were getting from the Turks as part of any kind of permanent peace deal was forthcoming, and with Shuvalov back in Russia by now, it was harder to get any assurances from his old friend. When the news did come on the 3rd of March, 78, it was worse than Darby could ever have feared, and it handed an immediate victory to Disraeli and his peers. The Treaty of San Stefano was the result of Russia's terrifying march towards the Ottoman capital, and to safeguard themselves against the Russian onslaught, the Turks had given up vast swathes of territory and relinquished many of their ancient rights to the region. Bulgaria was established as a huge independent nation-state, though still technically under Turkish suzerainty. Montenegro more than doubled in size, Serbia acquired new cities, Bosnia became fully independent, and further Caucasian concessions were granted to Russia, as she expanded into Georgia and parts of Armenia as well. Disraeli immediately cried foul and pointed very easily to the rampant Russian aggrandizement all across the Turkish Empire's lands, and Darby was conveniently upheld as the cause for this treaty, which Disraeli insisted would never have emerged had Britain maintained a stiff hand against Russia in the region. Faced with outcry not just from Britain but also from Austria, who seemed to lose out on its favoured place in Bosnia, and in Germany, where Bismarck believed Russia had gone too far, St. Petersburg actually readied itself for a conflagration as the great powers seemed to fight over the peace. Then, Bismarck struck again. Demonstrating his flair for opportunism, Bismarck invited all the interested powers, Britain, Russia, Turkey and Austria, 
to a swanky conference in Berlin. Having been distracted by events at home, Bismarck managed to update himself with the goings-on of the war just in time to see his opening. His motivation for calling the conference was not, as he claimed, because he wanted to be Europe's honest broker. We know Bismarck by now, and we know that he must have had ulterior motives for trying to find a solution that all could agree on. And of course he did have ulterior motives. And the reality of this is explained by Heo Holborn in his book A History of Modern Germany, 1840-1945, wherein he writes... Bismarck's step was ultimately motivated by the fear that, in the case of a war of England and Austria against Russia, Germany could not hope to maintain neutrality, particularly since France was likely to exploit the events by reasserting herself. But a German option for either Russia or Austria would have made Germany fight in a cause in which she had nothing to gain and which would have left her dependent on either Russia or England even after the war. Bismarck accepted the idea of a congress because he wanted to preserve the diplomatic freedom that Germany had acquired. Yet again, the sole reason for Bismarck not wanting to pick a side was because this would have messed up his plans for a coalition against France. Austria and Britain would only allow the Russians to go so far before Austria believed its sphere of influence in the region was threatened, or before Britain believed the balance of power it had set in place was in jeopardy. For Britain and Austria, the need for a power, however weak it was, in the Bosphorus, to hold Russia at bay or at least distract her in some way was invaluable. Bismarck wasn't as concerned about the balance of power as either Austria or Britain, though for Russia to be taken down a peg would certainly have been a favourable outcome, and this would make his job a lot easier in the future. No, what Bismarck really focused on was alliance blocks, more specifically how they could be used to isolate France. How to isolate France to prevent it creating the kind of coalition with Austria or, of course, Russia that Bismarck so feared was the true preoccupation of Bismarck throughout most of his life after the unification of Germany. When it became evident that the great powers were largely unhappy with what Russia had done, Bismarck saw his chance to recoup favour with Austria, thus preventing Vienna from losing face and feeling the need to search for allies elsewhere, such as Paris. By keeping the peace as well, Bismarck certainly hoped he could keep Britain out of the region too, and soothe that wily Disraeli's insulted feelings in the process. The Congress of Berlin was a significant moment for Bismarck, whether he readily admitted it or not, because it demonstrated a number of things to the world. First, to the untrained eye, Bismarck's Germany appeared to be the guiding hand of calm amongst the crazy calls for action and war in the East. Bismarck's conduct and his tone seemed to promote the idea that Bismarckian policy was devoted to peace in Europe, and Bismarck's prestige as a statesman rose as a result of this. Second, and in line with the idea that prestige would increase, the fact that the Congress was held in the Prussian capital, or German capital at all, in Berlin, signified the level to which Bismarck had elevated this now German empire. Since the late 1850s, Bismarck had promoted his home country's interests, while also furthering his ambitions, and 1878, in my opinion, would resemble the high point of both those qualities. Not only was Bismarck the honest broker who merely wanted to do business, he was also a supremely important and triumphant statesman, with no equal or rival for power in Germany, or for that matter, Europe. His efforts to maintain his power base and advance his country's interests in the face of the Russo-Turkish War ensured his government continued unfettered, while Disraeli's hold on power slipped despite his impressive showing at the Congress of Berlin, even if Disraeli ensured that Derby didn't survive the San Stefano controversy. 
It would not be the last time that Bismarck would ease international tensions within the old Prussian capital. Within a few years, the Europeans will be at one another's throats again, for a series of reasons which the Iron Chancellor didn't care for, and could never reconcile with his established strategy or principles. Then, as was the case here, he would represent Germany to the world. Even though the war had ended, the aftershocks after it did not. Bismarck's goals at the Congress had been to recognise the reduced power of the Ottomans, prevent the existence of a Bulgaria which was so large it changed his balance of power idea, or his alliance blocks, limit Russia wherever possible without her feeling offended at such moves, recognise the authority Austria had been seeking to impose upon the Balkans, particularly, surprise surprise, its beloved Bosnia and Herzegovina, all the while maintaining the interests of Britain and making sure France didn't somehow gain an ally. It was an important display of juggling, and of course, just like every other diplomatic event he participated in, Bismarck shined in his capacity as clear leader and visionary of the Congress. As Britain's representative in Berlin, Benjamin Disraeli was the one who argued for London's position during this tense time, and it was indeed perhaps only Disraeli who could match Bismarck's raw talent for wowing his guests and confounding his critics. As the two titans faced off, they shared dinner and a large quantity of alcohol together, while Bismarck famously pointed to Disraeli with the memorable quip, That old Jew, he's the man. As a response, Disraeli gave his own impressions of the Iron Chancellor, whom he'd last seen while Bismarck was undergoing his duties as ambassador to Russia in the late 1850s. Disraeli noted, Bismarck soars overall. He is six foot four, I should think, proportionately stout with a sweet and gentle voice, and with a particularly refined enunciation that singularly contrasts with the awful things he says, appalling as they are in their frankness and audacity. He is a complete despot here, and all from the highest to the lowest of the Prussians and all the permanent foreign diplomacy agents tremble under his frown and court most sedulously his smile. He loads me with kindness and often, though preoccupied with an immediate dissolution of Parliament on his hands, an everlasting war with the Socialists, hundreds of whom he puts daily in prison in defiance of all law, he yesterday extracted from me a promise that, before I depart, I will once more dine with him quite alone. The sheer force of will within the man is clearly not diminished with age, and I wonder as to where his energy, which he dispenses with ferocity on a moment's notice, originates from. One thing I have learned while in his presence, he does not suffer fools, the classic characteristic of any high-born Prussian, though there is something altogether exciting and commanding about the man, which one supposes explains why he has held his position for so long as the centrepiece of Germany. Bismarck, as Disraeli's account makes quite clear, was essential to Germany by this stage. The months before he called the conference in Berlin, Bismarck had asked for retirement, owing to the number of stumbling blocks present in Germany which prevented him smoothly acquiring what he wanted. Bismarck had to push hard and work harder to get anything up and past the Kaiser, and after 15 years he believed he shouldn't have to endure such hard work anymore. In their efforts to appease him, the Kaiser went to ridiculous lengths, but by the end of 1877 both were, incidentally, tiring of each other. A replacement was brought in, but he didn't work out, and then Bismarck was brought back in. In early 1878, an assassination attempt on Kaiser Wilhelm enabled Bismarck to call for a snap election and remove his major political enemies, the Liberals, from Parliament, 
just as the Pope died and Bismarck was then able to reorganise better terms with the Catholic Centre Party. In short, 1878 had been an important year for Bismarck's career, and the Congress of Berlin had been one of his first acts back in the position as Chancellor and Foreign Minister, the two offices he seemed destined to hold forever. It was undoubtedly a high point, but as Europe settled back into peace following the events of the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, it seemed fair to argue that the continent would never be the same again. Bismarck, after what happened with San Stefano, would have to work that much harder for an alliance with Russia, the Ottomans would have to be that much more conciliatory towards their European vassals for fear of foreign intervention, Russia would have to tread that much lighter for fear of offending European opinion again, and Disraeli would have to be aware of his old political nemesis, William Gladstone, who by this stage had re-emerged from retirement and seemed willing to challenge Disraeli for the premiership of Britain yet again. With that, with all those results, it was clear that the Russo-Turkish War had left an unmistakable mark on world and domestic affairs. And that, folks, is the end of When Diplomacy Fell's remastered look at the Russo-Turkish War of 1877. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you were able to get more out of it than you did the first go-around, if indeed you can remember what it was like the first time around. But yeah, thanks for sticking with it, and I hope you'll let me know what you think through the usual channels. Thanks again, guys. And I'll be seeing you pretty darn soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 